from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, How to Fire a Pastor. Host Leif Anderson, President of the NAE, talks with Marsha Shelley, Editor of Leadership Journal. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee, seeking to inform and equip Christians to share the biblical faith by proclaiming Jesus Christ as the way of salvation, the truth of God's Word, and the life of discipleship. More at layman.org. And now, let's join in. I'm Lee Henderson, president of NAE, here today with Marshall Shelley. Marshall is editor of Leadership Journal, a publication of Christianity Today. He has authored several books, including a longtime favorite of mine entitled Well-Intentioned Dragons, but also Ministering to Problem People in Your Church, The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham, which was co-authored with uh, Harold Myra, The Consumer Church, Can Evangelicals Win the World Without Losing Their Soul, that uh, co-authored with uh, Marshall's father, Bruce Shelley, and he is the general editor of the Quest Study Bible. Marshall studied journalism at Bethel University. He received a Master of Divinity degree and a Doctor of Divinity degree from Denver Seminary, but he's also studied at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Wheaton College Graduate School, Stanford University, and has served on the boards of the Marble Retreat Center, a care facility for clergy in crisis, and the EPA, the Evangelical Press Association, the American Tract Society. Uh, Marshall has held pastoral staff positions in two churches in Denver, and the Shelleys, uh, he and Susan, are active in Parkview Community Church in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And in fact, Susan serves on the staff as the pastor of family care. And Marshall has been an elder there and a periodic Bible teacher, and uh, together they host a group of 20-somethings each week. And today, we're talking on the topic of hiring and firing pastors, and generally relationships between pastors and their congregations and church boards. There is a rising trend of involuntary pastoral terminations, and it seems to match with a rise of congregational expectations of their pastors. It's a time when ministry is considered one of America's most demanding and really most difficult jobs. Churches often don't have adequate skill or experience to handle difficult pastoral issues, and frankly, few of them are wise with terminations. There are tendencies to follow the advice of a dominant internal leader or uh, to fantasize that the departing pastor will be replaced by someone just much better or to elevate money over persons and, and to fail to see the long-term consequences of poorly handled terminations. So all of these topics come together. And by the way, uh, take a look at the NAE Code of Ethics for Pastors and the NAE Code of Ethics for Congregations because they both address some of these issues, and you can see them at nae.net. So, Marshall, delighted that you are on today's conversation. And let me just start out by asking, why are we talking about this subject? Why is this important? Well, as you alluded in your introduction, Leith, it's, uh, I think we're talking about this because uh, it's sometimes an inevitability that uh, leaders are going to separate um, and uh, a church does need to make a change, but uh, it's, it's so often done so poorly that it uh, damages the church, it damages the church's reputation and uh, ministry in the community, uh, 
and it can certainly damage um, the the pastor and the pastor's family. And if there's a pastor who's there one Sunday and gone the next with little or no explanation, it can uh, often also lead to uh, civil war within the church. So it's just a uh, it's just a very delicate time. It's a vulnerable time both for the uh, the pastor as well as the congregation. And uh, done done well, it can lead to renewed strength in the church. But done poorly, it can do undue damage. So there's really two issues here. One is whether or not to terminate a pastor and then how it's done. And um, I think we're focusing primarily on how it's done. How, how widespread is this? Are there a lot of pastoral terminations? Well, the, there are. Um, the the most recent uh, research that I was able to come across is uh, is a little, uh, is, you know, 20 years old now, but it's uh, it indicated when uh, Christianity Today did a, some uh, polling of the uh, the pastors that um, in our in our sphere indicated that 23 percent of them said that uh, they'd been um, they'd been let go at a previous position so that's not almost a quarter of the uh, of the pastors had been either fired or pressured to resign in a previous uh, position so that's that's a significant number it's not a majority by any means but it's certainly a significant minority of, uh, of churches that uh, have uh, have actively had to ask a pastor to leave. Well, each month the NAE has what we call the Evangelical Leader Survey. In July of 2015, we asked uh, our survey recipients, and these are top leaders, heads of denominations and organizations, if they had ever been terminated from a paid ministry position, and it was 18%, so that's almost one in five. And these are people that went on to significant leadership. I, I just got to tuck in here a bit of my own experience. After graduating from seminary, I was a youth pastor in uh, a church in the Rocky Mountain West, and the church voted me out. So it was really, at the time, an awfully painful experience. It wasn't because I had done anything bad, but it was because they didn't have money to pay me. And all the ironies, the, the senior pastor of the church had to go away shortly after that, and they didn't have anybody to preach the next Sunday. And the chairman of the board called me up, and said, would I preach, because I couldn't find anybody else. And then he said, and we knew you'd be free. <laughs> well, of course he knew <laughs> I was going to be free, because they had just fired me a few days earlier. Yeah, they had made sure you were free. <laughs> yes. Oh. Well, and the irony of it was, a couple of months later, the senior pastor resigned. They called me as a senior pastor, and I ended up being there 10 years. So it, it doesn't always mean that uh, the person has done some awful thing. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be a bad outcome. but it means that it's just got to be done right. All right. Well, well, and also it also means I think that is a great story because it also illustrates that uh, firings can be painful. They are they are humiliating, and you feel um, you know you can feel used even if there's good reason uh, for the uh, for the firing. But it also shows on the redemptive side that just because there's been a firing doesn't mean that uh, your ministry is over or that the relationship with that particular church is over. Uh, firings can. Uh, can lead to a renewed, um, a new, renewed relationship down the road. And that's the best of the outcomes, and that's certainly what we want. You know, does the Bible say something about this? Um, or was this not an issue in biblical days? Well, I think that's both of those, uh, those uh, questions are, uh, are, are true. The, um, you know, the, the word pastor, you know, we talk about firing a pastor, uh, the word pastor in the New Testament is the, actually the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd, and uh, you know that's a metaphor that uh, doesn't necessarily uh, 
suggest that the sheep are going to rise up and fire the the, uh, the shepherd. Um, but uh, the word in, in the New Testament more describes a role, someone who is a, a protector, a, a nourisher, one who sees that the sheep have uh, good feeding grounds. Um, but uh, the Bible also describes what could be called uh, you know, shepherd malpractice or pastoral malpractice, which would presumably indicate that it's, it's time for a shepherd or pastor to uh, be removed for not doing the job. Um, you know, in, uh, in some of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy 5, for instance, he acknowledges that uh, leaders must be held accountable. Um, he said, uh, you know, do not entertain an accusation against an elder, presumably if there's an accusation of pastoral malconduct or, uh, or some uh, breach, of, uh, breach of duty. He said, don't, but don't, accuse, uh, don't entertain an accusation unless it's brought by two or more witnesses. Uh, Paul certainly recognizes that it's possible for one person to go on a on the warpath and try to uh, take it out on a uh, on a pastor shepherd, and he says that's you know it's got to be uh, it's got to be a due process there. But he says, uh, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that others may take warning. So so yes, uh, pastors are to be held accountable for their uh, for their behavior, for their doctrine, for their example, for their uh, their leadership. But uh, you know they are not to be uh, treated without uh, respect and without uh, due process. And then one other passage I think is uh, is appropriate here for First uh, Peter chapter five says to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care watching over them not because you must but because you're willing as God wants you to be. But don't pursue dishonest gain but be eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And there again uh, you know Paul suggest that there are some things that uh, would be pastoral malpractice which uh, you know need to be confronted and uh, are not to be tolerated but um, uh, again a, a pastors be dealt with with respect well you mentioned Paul and he certainly does in first Timothy and then Peter and first Peter 5 um, give great advice I'm not sure Paul always had the best of judgment himself he you know this guy working for him named Mark John Mark and relationship didn't go very well and he pretty much fired him or at least he wouldn't rehire him and so John Mark had to go off and not work for Paul anymore and work for his cousin Barnabas instead and you know actually Mark turned out okay he wrote the second gospel of the New Testament so yeah I'm not, I'm not sure that Paul judged the guy correctly well personnel decisions are always some of the most uh, challenging decisions and uh, you know very few people are uh, are going to bat a thousand when it comes to personnel decisions. There's always going to be some that you uh, say, "Well, upon further review, uh, I might have done that differently." But I do find uh, you know, encouragement that uh, Paul, even I think it's in Second Timothy, there uh, comes back and uh, asks Timothy to uh, uh, greet Mark and uh, ask him to come to him because he finds Mark useful for ministry. And so I think even even after Paul fired, and you're right, Paul fired John Mark, but uh, it seems later on in his ministry, he there was some redemption there, and he saw the uh, the value. Maybe maybe John Mark had learned some things from that uh, tough, astringent experience, and uh, was uh, finding a way to uh, put it to use in ministry that even Paul recognized. And maybe Paul thought it through and uh, saw it a little bit differently after time passed. But we're not then; we're now, and. We have professional expectations and accreditation and training and 
legal and ethical. So is it the same or are we at a different place, a different threshold, a different set of expectations for pastors today than what was in the first century? Well, and it, the pastorate today is certainly not just the informal shepherding relationship. Uh, you're right. There are legal, ethical, professional standards that uh, have to be met uh, simply because of the regulated society that we're in. There are liabilities. There are there are financial reporting relationships that have to be uh, observed. There are... Um, there are professional standards that uh, are a part of the things, and leadership is essentially about influence. And influence, um, if if a leader, if leadership is influence, a, a person's leadership and influence is affected greatly by the amount of trust that uh, the congregation has within the leader. And if that trust is broken, and it can be broken for uh, you know any number of reasons, then uh, the leadership is effectively over and. Um, that trust can, you know, in some circumstances, can be rebuilt, but in other, in other circumstances, it's not. And uh, those who are uh, responsible for the uh, ongoing health of a congregation and, and responsible for the oversight of uh, of a pastor, you know, are obligated to acknowledge that reality and uh, and to deal with that. So, I think there are, um, you know, legitimate reasons to terminate a, a pastor's relationship with the congregation. So what might they be? I mean, the clear ones. What what are some legitimate, clear reasons to terminate a pastor's relationship with his congregation? Well, I've been on a number of uh, pastor search committees. I've been an elder on a in, in at least two uh, two churches here in the in the uh, last several years. And uh, when we look for pastors, we we generally talk about the three C's: uh, character, competence, and chemistry. You know, that's where we're looking for uh, for a pastor who has the Character traits that are uh, that are mentioned in in the Bible, but uh, that are also exemplary to the congregation. We're looking for competence in some of the key pastoring skills, the ability to uh, to preach to preach the word uh, clearly and effectively, the ability to uh, practice hospitality, the uh, the uh, competence in soul care, being able to, to disciple, to make disciples, and to uh, uh, Help people recognize how Christ is walking with them in the uh, in the day-to-day life, and then chemistry, just the uh, the ability to um, to fit in and to address the context that this particular congregation is in. Uh, if if it's in a uh, rural and agricultural area, being able to understand uh, what it means to live in that kind of environment. It's if it's an urban uh, if it's an urban neighborhood, what it means to be faithful and effective uh, as a believer in in that urban neighborhood. If there's a multiplicity of cultures, if there are refugees, if you know there are lots of um, what I would what I would call um, there has to be a DNA match uh, of, of the the pastor to the uh, the culture that uh, the congregation is in. So character, competence, and chemistry, I would say, are three of the. Uh, um, Things that have to be in alignment for a uh, for a pastoral um, for a pastor to be effective and faithful in a in a church. But then there's also the the doctrinal issues. Uh, you know there there was a um, you know uh, I know of a, a church uh, near near my hometown of uh, Denver, Colorado, where uh, you know the pastor uh, over the course of a few years significantly changed his doctoral uh, doctrinal 
positions, particularly on uh, uh, how universal uh, salvation was. And um, when uh, when he was no longer uh, in compliance with the uh, you know, doctrinal statement of the church, it was. Uh, you know, it was incumbent upon the congregation to address the fact that what uh, what he's preaching and what he believes is is not what uh, is not what the church uh, believed, and so that uh, you know that is a very legitimate issue to uh, to raise, and it uh, led to the uh, the uh, termination of that pastor's relationship with the congregation. It seems to me it's a little bit easier if a leader embezzles money or becomes heterodox or it's it's the subjective things that are that are more difficult. You know, I, I asked a pastor once, um, what would happen if you put one of your children in public school? And he said to me, I'd be fired in a week. Well, I don't think that was part of his initial agreement, but he was in a church where everybody sent their children to a parochial school or homeschooled or whatever it was. So isn't it often... Uh, subjective, personal reasons that uh, kind of are hard to measure, and there could be differences of opinion. Yes, and that's what makes this such a uh, you know such a painful and awkward um, conversation because a lot of times these things, uh, these non-negotiables are are assumed, but they're not expressed. Uh, they're not they're not uh, observed. Uh, until they're violated, and then uh, then it it shows just how impeachable these things are, and so yes, uh, you know, choice of choice of schooling is uh, is one of those things that uh, you know a wise a wise pastor would uh, you know would do a character reference on the church and uh, try to find you know what are some of these unspoken non-negotiables and. Uh, Learn that chemistry of the church. Learn that part of the church's DNA before uh, accepting the call. But uh, yeah, sometimes you find yourself in that situation and are surprised by some of the non-negotiable expectations that are there. Um, you know, some of those things. You know, we've we've seen that in some cases. Um, you know, about the uh, regarding the the pastor's spouse and the expectations on a pastor's spouse, and when. Uh, the spouse, you know, does not meet the unspoken expectations of the uh, congregation. You know, that can be, you know, very painful, and at times it's um, it's it's led to a uh, separation between the church and the congregation. But uh, those those things are rarely put down on a job description. They are rarely put down in a uh, employment agreement letter, uh, but they're very real. <coughs> Well, that speaks to the issue of being preventative, that they ought to check out the church before the pastor accepts a call, or the church really ought to you know, check out the pastor or the potential pastor. And some congregations are sort of uh, widow-makers. You know, they go through a lot of uh, different pastors. Uh, some years ago in Minnesota, I was on a denominational committee that was supervising churches and helping with the placement of pastors, and we discovered a church where every pastor over a decade or more had been terminated. In that case, we decided to block future candidates from access. We wouldn't give any names. We wouldn't help them until there was an intervention and that church got some help, some counsel, that they stopped destroying pastors. So, you know, is is that just my experience or are there other experiences like that as well? No, there are certainly others. And um, in fact, we did some uh, uh, we did some research, as I mentioned a while back, and um, we asked pastors who had been forced out um, 
if the church had done it uh, had done it before, and 62% uh, of them said that uh, the church that fired them had uh, had fired their predecessor, and of those who had pushed out the predecessor, um, you know, 41% of those indicated that the church had done it more than more than twice, more than uh, that pastor and his predecessor. So there are what I call repeat offender churches, uh, and uh, yeah, those can be. A lot of times that's just a dysfunctional uh, congregation or it's a toxic environment. And boy, I think you and your group were, uh, were wise to say an intervention is, is needed here. This is, uh, this is going to be a place where nobody is going to be able to succeed um, without, uh, without addressing some of the, uh, the systemic uh, problems that are uh, preventing them from being able to respond well to any leadership. Earlier I mentioned some reasons, at least in my experience, why uh, churches do this. Uh, one of them is that they fantasize that when this person goes, they're going to get somebody who's absolutely much better and, and terrific. But uh, tell us, what, what, are, what are some of the bad ways that you've seen pastors get fired? It's sort of a warning to church leaders, especially to be on the watch out that they're not doing this. What, what would that list include? Well, um there's some there's just some classic horror stories that are uh, you know told among uh, in pastoral circles uh pastor walks into a deacon's meeting and uh, somebody clears his throat and says well uh, pastor while you were on vacation some of us had a meeting and uh, some are saying that they're just not getting fed spiritually and the church finances are down and attendance isn't what it ought to be but uh, so we feel changes need to be made and uh, so we're looking for a change in pastors and we'd like for you to look for another church and be out of the parsonage in uh, no more than 3 months and uh, you know that being the first time that the uh, that the pastor had heard that there was uh, you know that level of dissatisfaction, um, <laughs> there's a there's a joke that pastors tell. I think probably rooted in in some truth. But uh, I remember when I first came to leadership, I was sitting down with uh, with a pastor, and he told me his his favorite uh, pastoral story. He said. Uh, Pastor walks into a pet shop and uh, asks for a hundred, a hundred cockroaches, a dozen mice, and a snake. And the uh, owner of the pet store says, uh, what do you want uh, the cockroaches, mice, and a snake for? He says, well, I had a deacon's meeting last night, and they told me I needed to be out of, uh, I was out of a job and need to be out of the parsonage by uh, tomorrow night, and they told me to leave the house in just the condition I found it. And so <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he was repopulating the, uh, the parsonage there. So, you know, there, there are some uh, stories like that that, uh, that are there, but but often I would say, more serious answer to your question, um, the firing malpractice, I would say, when there is a sudden, abrupt, unexpected uh, decision without due process. Uh, when a pastor walks in on a, on a meeting of the board and uh, finds out that they've been meeting in secret, and all of a sudden they are making an announcement that uh, he did not know was even on the, uh, was even on the agenda. Or... Um, you know another another story. I remember um, talking with a uh, a long-term staff pastor who, uh, after a uh, after a senior uh, change at the senior pastor level, the uh, he was you know having some difficulties or having some uh, conflict with a senior pastor, and so the senior pastor uh, um, reorganized the uh, the pastoral staff and had the youth pastor uh, supervise the. Uh, the associate pastor who was doing the uh, you know the uh, visitation the the congregational care and after uh, after a month then uh, had the youth pastor tell the staff you know the associate pastor that uh, that he was fired uh, that that I would say is 
you know, was a firing that maybe was necessary in sort of a Barnabas and Paul situation, but it was not handled well. Um, having the the word come from uh, the youth pastor and not having a you know uh, serious conversation about what could be done to um, to meet the needs of the uh, the church and the vision of the uh, the new senior pastor. It's a matter of treating people right, even in, in difficult circumstances. So let's let's talk about that. What are the right ways? We've we've talked a lot, and there could be a lot more stories that we could both add into this of where it's gone wrong. But let's assume that a pastoral relationship should be terminated. What's what's the right way to go about doing this difficult task? Well, I'd say number one. Um, make sure there's a process and that that means having the right people involved this is not just the decision of one person and uh, I think in this case this is where you know small churches sometimes are run by a very uh, small faction of people it could be you know one or two dominant uh, dominant families it could be um, one um, one church boss essentially who who makes these decisions and uh, oftentimes that is um, grounds, a fertile grounds for um, for uh, unfair firings or for um, them being handled very poorly. So having a due process where the legitimately um, elected or appointed um, leaders within the congregation are making the decision as a group is uh, is pretty important. Secondly, uh, making sure that firing is not the first option. When things uh, aren't going well with the church, sometimes um, firing the pastor is is seen as well. That's that's our only option. Well, that's not the that should not be the first option. Trying to address the uh, the difficulties, whatever the uh, the misalignment is, trying to correct, redirect, or redeem the situation is, uh, uh, and making that clear to both the pastor as well as the church leaders that uh, you know we are. Uh, making corrective actions short of a firing uh, is, is an important element of that. And then thirdly, and the last thing I'd say is when it does come time to uh, to fire, uh, be as compassionate as possible. Be, uh, be known for uh, going the extra mile in terms of uh, gentleness and generosity. That means um, if there is going to be a firing, make sure there is uh, severance, that there's pay for unused vacation, that if possible some continued health coverage uh, is available even if paid for by the uh, by the terminated employee, and uh, you know assistance in finding new employment is is offered. Uh, that can go a long way in uh, in uh, communicating that we we want you to succeed even if you can't uh, stay here. And that would be a standard that's applied in the best of companies in America, and the church should should do the same. I've sometimes said to churches, if you have a staff member that you're terminating, be overly generous in severance because if you're not, there'll be people in the church that may cut off their giving or redirect their giving to that terminated employee and it's actually more expensive for you than, than being generous. But being generous is the right thing to do. But what do you say publicly about this? It, it seems to me that sometimes what is told to the congregation is not actually what's been going on in the conversation between church leadership and that newly terminated pastor. So, what's some advice there, Marshall? Well, that's 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 a very significant issue, and it's a great question because uh, oftentimes with personnel issues, you can't uh, you can't violate a confidence, you can't uh, violate privacy. Uh, that 
you can't tell all the all the details that are involved in the in the decision. But uh, you know, rule number one: um, don't lie. <laughs> uh, you may not be able to to say everything that you know, but what you do say must be true. And uh, if if nothing else, um, you know, you you can say that uh, you know the 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 duly appointed leaders uh, did due process and came to the conclusion that uh, a change had to be made. Um, but in, in the statements, don't lie, don't slander. Uh, sometimes people try to justify their decisions publicly um, about the former employee by, um, by, by saying things that um, are really damaging to um, to that person's character and ability to find uh, another uh, another position, and uh, it's in those situations where you're um, you know, vulnerable to a lawsuit um, if if too much information uh, that's damaging is communicated. Uh, in the best of all situations, uh, the uh, the church leaders and the former pastor would agree on a statement. Uh, some sort of agreement with the terminated employee about what we will say about this, and sometimes this is uh, part of a, a an understanding that uh, um, this is part of the severance agreement that we will um, we will offer severance, and part of that severance is we will be able to say these things, and we will uh, and you will not um, you will not sue the uh, the church, and you will not um, you know talk down. About the church, and we can leave on uh, on as good a terms as possible, and try to redeem the situation. So I think those are those are some of the uh, some of the things that uh, would guide a, you know guide the direction of how a, uh, how to speak publicly about a termination. This has been very helpful. We could go on and on, and uh, there's a temptation to just cover a whole lot more information and material. But what other advice, finally, do you have for church leaders as they consider the possibility they may have to let a person go. Well, I'd say uh, two things. Number one, uh, contact the church's insurance company. Um, you're paying premiums for your liability coverage, and your insurance company has a legal department, and they have a vested interest in avoiding lawsuits from, dis uh, from disgruntled ex-employees. So contact your um, insurance company, and uh, they may have uh, people with more HR experience than uh, you have available in uh, in your congregation. So that would be one. And then secondly, as you uh, referenced at the intro, the NAE has a code of ethics for congregations and a code of ethics for pastors. And uh, there are several elements in that that uh, help guide you in terms of uh, uh, developing, maintaining, and even separating uh, uh, relationships with, uh, with church leaders. And those are very helpful. Well, this has been really good. Among other things, you have um, stated and reinforced the value of getting outside advice because, fortunately, churches don't do this very often, and those that do it probably don't have a lot of experience and need precisely the counsel that you have been giving. Well, our guest on today's conversation has been Marshall Shelley, the editor of Leadership Journal. I'm Leif Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Marshall. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. 
To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.